Let's pray. Father, we look to You and we ask that You would help us to understand this uh, portion of Your Word. And God, I ask that You would help us not only to understand it, but to receive it, and that it might have its full and powerful work uh, in us, that it might humble us in Your presence, and that it might uh, increase our faith and our trust in You. We ask in Jesus' name, Amen. You know, I've mentioned um, on occasion uh, my testimony, and uh, I'm not going to give my testimony this morning, but I did want to tell you a little bit about how I came to um, be called into the ministry. Uh, I became a Christian uh, during the... um, spring semester of my freshman year in college. This would have been 1986. And um, then went home for the summer as a Christian and um, came back to school the following year. And early on in that year, uh, there was a pastor who came on to the Georgia Southern College campus. Now it's Georgia Southern University. But uh, he was speaking against abortion. And uh, he had a, a large crowd of people that were debating him. And he was standing up and he was holding forth and he, he demolished every argument. And then as he did that and everybody realized that he had won the day, he began uh, quoting passages in, from the Scriptures, from books I had never even heard of. You know, Obadiah, Habakkuk. I was thinking, you know, is that even in the Bible? And and uh, I went and I looked, and sure enough, it was. And and the way he handled the truth of God was just it flabbergasted me. Meanwhile, before that, I had been laying awake at night in my bed, um, wishing that I could go back and tell. Uh, my home church about this Jesus that I had met. Uh, I grew up in a little country church and um, as long as you had walked the aisle and uh, were not living in too much gross outward uh, sin, well, you were a Christian. And I realized that that was wrong and I realized that salvation in Jesus Christ was so much more And so I had been laying awake at night composing these sermons that I'd love to go home to my home church and preach. Well, then uh, this happened, this pastor was there, and after he spoke, I went up to him and I said, can you teach me how to handle the Scriptures and know the Scriptures like you know the Scriptures? He said, sure, let's go get some lunch. So um, we went to lunch. He said... I'm going to let you ask any question you want to ask. And I can't remember any of the questions I asked. But I do remember at the end of that lunch, he said, let's get together next week, same place, same time, and I'm going to ask you one question. So I said, okay. So we met together. He opened up to Romans chapter 9. He said, read this for me and then tell me what it means. And I read this passage of Scripture. I had no clue what it meant because what I was reading in the, on the page certainly could not be true. 
And so we talked about it. We came to the end of that meeting and I thought, well, it certainly seems to be true. And so uh, I proceeded to not go to class for the next week. I locked myself in my room and studied the Bible. I uh, took a couple of books that he had offered to me. I read those and I came out at the other end of that week saying, this is true and my life was transformed. And so, uh, this Romans chapter 9 is very precious to me. And I hope if it is not precious to you now, come a half hour from now, that it will be precious to you. So let's look at the text. Uh, There's several questions that are raised here. Some are overtly raised, some are implied here in the text. And remember when we first started looking at the book of Romans, I talked about this antagonist that would show up. Well, this antagonist is going to show up and ask some different questions. Of course, it's not someone asking questions. These are Paul. This is Paul anticipating the questions that we will ask. If you're not familiar with Romans 9, as I go through, I would bet that you might be asking these questions um, ahead of me as we move through this passage. So, so this antagonist comes up and asks several questions. But the first question is not asked. But it's a question that is certainly hanging out there. The first question is, um, after Romans chapter 8, um, a question, again, that's not asked but He answers. So here's what's happening. It appears that God is not faithful to His promises. Well, that's a pretty big problem. That's a pretty big question. Is God faithful to His promises? And the reason why this this question is raised is because Paul says in Romans chapter 8, I'll just start with verse 38. In verse 38 and 39, he says, For I am sure that neither death nor life, nor angels nor rulers, nor things present nor things to come, nor powers nor height nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. He says, I am sure, I am certain, there is no question whatsoever, You, if you are in Jesus Christ, nothing will be able to separate you from God's love. That's That is a statement without qualification. But then, maybe you're saying, but God gave His promises to the Jews. And it seems like He turned His back on them. And so, is God really faithful to His Jews? Did they... Were they so rebellious that He decided, I'm going to take back my promises that I made to them? And so that's the question that is on the table that Paul proceeds to answer in verses 1 through 5. Well, really, chapters 9 through 11. But uh, that's the reason why he starts uh, saying, as he does in verses 1 through 5, 
I am speaking the truth in Christ. I am not lying. My conscience bears me witness in the Holy Spirit that I have great sorrow and unceasing anguish in my heart. For I could wish that I myself were accursed and cut off from Christ for the sake of my brothers, my kinsmen according to the flesh. They are Israelites, and to them belong the adoption, the glory, the covenants, the giving of the law, the worship, and the promises. To them belong the patriarchs, and from their race according to the flesh is the Christ who is God over all, forever blessed. God promised that He would be Israel's God It appears that he has turned to the Gentiles. And so that's the reason why Paul um, makes this big transition in the book of Romans. And so he's going to answer that. He answers it in verse 6. It is not as though the Word of God has failed. God's promise has not failed, but we need to understand this. But I want to back up for a moment before we get into verse 6. I want to look at verses 1 through 5 for a second. Paul is beside himself to the point that he is wishing that if it were possible, he himself would be cursed and cut off from Christ himself. I mean, Paul understands this salvation. Paul understands this salvation better than any of us. And yet, and he knows the Lord Jesus. He rejoices and glories in Christ. He says in Philippians, I don't know what is better, to to die and go with Christ or or to be left here where I'm still um, useful to Him. I'd rather be with Christ. Such is His love for Christ. And yet, He's willing to be cursed and cut off if it were possible for the sake of His fellow Jews and Israelites who do not know the Lord. And I want to ask you, if you're a believer, is this your attitude toward those who are not believers? Towards your neighbors? Towards your relatives? Towards your fellow Americans? Towards your fellow human beings living in the world? Do you weep over those who do not know the Lord Jesus Christ? Do you, are you in anguish that there are people who are in our community, people who you love, people who you know and talk to every day, who are going to die and are going to pass into eternity under the wrath and damnation of God Himself, who are going to spend eternity under His wrath, suffering the punishment, the unmitigated, the unstoppable punishment that we all deserve. Have you ever anguished? Are you anguishing over the lost? And if you don't know the Lord Jesus Christ, I want to ask you, do you realize that you are in a position that is worthy of being wept over? Paul is talking here to the Israelites. The Israelites were very religious. Listen to this this, um, list of the benefits that God gave to them. Theirs 
They were the Israelites. To them belonged the adoption, the glory, the covenants, the giving of the law, the worship, the promises. To them belonged the patriarchs. And from their race, according to the flesh, is the Christ, is the Messiah, who is God over all, forever blessed. The Israelites, Jews, they were very religious. They rested and rejoiced in their religiousness. And yet, Paul was weeping over them because they were going to hell. It is very easy for church-going people, for people who have been raised in church, for the children of a godly family, to rest in your religion, to rest in the benefits of your religion. You hear the Scriptures. Yours is the Scriptures. Yours is the weekly worship. Yours is the the confession of, of Jesus Christ that you hear week in, week out, probably day in, day out. But yet, if you're not in Christ, all the religion... All the hours spent in church, in youth group, in service for the church, it's all for nothing. And you are in a position to be wept over because you don't know the Lord Jesus Christ. I pray that there be none of you who are without Jesus Christ. I pray that there would be none of you who would leave this morning without knowing Jesus Christ, being committed to Him, loving Him with all your heart, mind, soul, and strength, trusting Him with all your heart. Paul weeps because if you're outside Jesus Christ, you are certainly in a position that should be wept over. Moving on to verse 6. He says, It is not as though the Word of God has failed. In other words, God keeps His promises. Even if it doesn't look like it. He says, You misunderstand, is Paul's, is the implication. He says, For not all who are descended from Israel belong to Israel. In other words, um, not every person who is a genetic Jew who descended from Abraham were really true Israelites. And he's going to explain what that means. He's going to use illustrations to show us what this means in verses 7 through 13. So let's look at these illustrations. What does it mean for one who is descended from Israel to belong to Israel? What does it mean for one who is descended from Israel to not belong to Israel? So that's what that's the the issue here. And not and not all are children of Abraham because they are his offspring. But and then he quotes from uh, the book of Genesis, through Isaac your offspring um shall your offspring be named. And if you know your Old Testament history, you know what's happening here. Uh, Abraham was given these promises that he would be the father of many nations, that he would have many descendants. Well, 
he kept getting older and older. And uh, his wife, uh, Sarah, said, well, you've got this concubine, Hagar. If we're not able to, to have children, why don't you go visit her? And so he went and visited her. Uh, she gave birth to a child, Ishmael. And Ishmael was not the child of the promise. But rather, after that, God and Sarah, in their very old age, they did have a child named Isaac. And so it is through Isaac that Abraham's offspring will be named, verse 7. And so he says, verse 8, this means it is not the children of the flesh who are the children of God, but the children of the promise are accounted as offspring. And so he says, verse 9, for this is what the promise said, about this time next year I will return and Sarah will have a son. And so he uses this illustration from Abraham and Sarah, and it seemed, you know, a person could say, well, of course, Ishmael is not the promised uh, child because Abraham went outside the family. He went out. He went to Hagar. God did not promise that Abraham would have a child with Hagar. And so, he's not child of the promise. So then he begins to narrow down. Verse, uh, verse 10, And not only so, but also when Rebekah, who ended up being Isaac's wife, when Rebekah had conceived children by one man, our father Isaac, though they were not yet born or had done anything, either good or bad, in order that God's purpose and election might continue, not because of works, but because of Him who calls, she was sold the older, will serve the younger. So he's switching now from Abraham and Sarah and Isaac to, to Isaac and Rebekah. And they had children, but they had twins. And these twins, before they were done anything good or bad, one was chosen, the other was not. And to make um, the issue even more clear, the older one, who was normally the one who would be the favored child, the one who would receive the inheritance, he was not given the inheritance. Rather, the younger one was chosen. So, Jacob and Esau, the two twins born of Isaac and Rebekah, Esau was born first, and then Jacob. But before the, bo- the twins were born or had done anything good or bad, God made a distinction between the two. Listen again to verse 11. Though they were not yet born or had done anything either good or bad in order that God's purpose and election might continue, not because of works, but by Him who calls, she was told the older will serve the younger. Again, remember the question is, um, going back to verse 6, for not all who are descended from Israel belong to Israel, but rather those who are the children of the promise. And so he's saying, Jacob is the child of the promise. Even though they're twins, and Jacob was the younger, he is the child of the promise. Esau 
was not. Just real quickly, think with me about Jacob. Was Jacob a godly man when he was younger? No. Was Jacob a godly man during his middle age? No. He was not. In fact, the Bible goes out of its way to say Jacob, who was the chosen one, he was a deceiver. He was a manipulator. He cheated his brother out of his birthright. He cheated his father out of the blessing that was to be given to Esau. He then ran off in fear for his life from from his brother Esau uh, to his uncle. There he cheated his uncle out of um, a lot of his his flocks. And even though he was he was not able to fully cheat his uncle, he really tried. And God ended up giving him most of the flocks uh, in spite of, of Jacob's deception. And so through it all, Jacob is a rascal. He's a scoundrel. He does not know the Lord. And the Bible is very clear in making this point. Jacob, the chosen one, is, is a reprobate. And it's not until Jacob... Uh, flees from his uncle and begins to return home that the angel met uh, Jacob, wrestled with him. It was not until that night that Jacob was converted. And so Jacob lived a, a, a large part of his life, decades and decades and decades of his life without God, even though he was the chosen one. And yet it says, though they were born, verse 11, or though they were not yet born and had done nothing either good or bad in order that God's purpose and election might continue, not because of works, but because of Him who calls. She was told, the older will serve the younger. And then verse 13, just as it is written, Jacob I loved and Esau I hated. That is a shocking statement for Paul to say that within the context of them not yet being born, not yet having done anything good or bad, within the context of God's election. He says, Jacob I loved, Esau I hated. So that is uh, quite a question. In fact, it raises a whole new question. How could God love Esau before they were born? Is the question that many people ask at this point. And I remember uh, my first year of seminary was at Knox Seminary. And uh, I had Dr. Raymond for, for the book of Romans. And Dr. Raymond was from South Alabama. And um, there was a guy in our class named Jay Stoms. And Jay just... He was. He did not like this at all. Jacob, I loved. Esau, I hated before they were born or done anything good or bad. He, Dr. Raymond, Dr. Raymond, how can this be? Dr. Raymond with his, uh, his South Alabama drawl, he said, Brother, I don't think it's fair either. 
I don't understand why God would love Jacob. You see what he did there? Jay wanted to know how can God hate Esau. And Dr. Raymond said, really, if there's anything unfair about verse 13, is how can God love Jacob? Jacob, the deceiver. Jacob, the scoundrel. Jacob, the reprobate. Let me ask you, have you ever considered yourself in thinking about yourself, left to yourself, that you deserve to be hated by God because of your sin? Have you ever thought about that? Left to yourself without God working in your life, that you are, as Paul would say in Ephesians chapter 2, an object of wrath, an object of God's wrath, a child of His wrath, That's what's happening here. Left to ourselves, God should hate every one of us. God should pour out His unmitigated wrath on every one of us. If we, if God in His sovereignty did not choose, if God in His predestination and election did not choose a people for Himself, we all would simply be objects of God's wrath for all eternity. Before the twins were born or had done anything good or bad, God chose Jacob. And He left Esau under His wrath. So then, you know, God, I've got a question. The antagonist uh, pops up in verse 14. What shall we say then? Is God unjust if He's going to do that? Paul says, what shall we say? Is there there injustice on God's part? And he says, by no means. And so he begins answering this next question. And Paul uses Pharaoh to answer this question. He says, verse 15, For he says to Moses, I will have mercy on whom I have mercy, and I will have compassion on whom I have compassion. So then it depends not on human will or exertion, but on God who has mercy. For the Scripture says to Pharaoh, For this very purpose I have raised you up, that I might show my power in you, and that my name might be proclaimed in all the earth. So then he has mercy on whomever he wills, and he hardens whomever he wills. You see that? Remember Pharaoh? Pharaoh hardened his heart against God, but as God would pour out the plagues, it it would say Pharaoh relented, and then it says God hardened his heart. Who hardened Pharaoh's heart? Did Pharaoh harden his heart? Yes. Did God harden his heart? Yes. And the implication here is God could have softened Pharaoh's heart had he so willed. But Paul goes on to say, God will have mercy on whom He will have mercy. He will have compassion on whom He will have compassion. It doesn't depend on human will or exertion, but on God's mercy. And he says in verse 18, So then He has mercy on whomever He wills. He hardens whomever He wills. If you are outside Jesus Christ, and you have this idea later 
maybe next year, five years from now, whatever, I'm going to come to Christ, you're, you're putting yourself in a bad position. Because you come to Christ on His timetable, not your own. What is God's timetable? He says, today is the day of salvation. Call out to Him today for mercy. You say, I don't know if I've ever heard about a God like... This is not the God that I I have uh, been raised to, to believe and worship. A God who hardens and a God who who um, shows mercy to, to some and not to others. And I've heard that many times. My God is not like that. I say, well, this is the God of the Bible. It's right here in the text. If you have an argument, take your argument up with God and His Word. He has mercy on whom He desires. He hardens whom He hardens. Here's the point. None of us would be saved if He did not save a people for Himself. If He did not choose a people for Himself, none of us would be saved because we all deserve His wrath, His hatred, and damnation forever. So then He he raises still another question in verses 19 through 25. Here's the antagonist. Who You will say to me then, why does he still find fault? For who resists his will? Isn't that the, the logical next question? If he's in control over whoever is going to believe, who resists his will? And, and then the question is, why does God still blame us if nobody can resist his will? If he's predestined and preplanned everything, how can he blame anyone for the choices they make if he is the one who's ultimately in control of their choices? So, he acknowledges this question. And it's at this point that we would expect Paul then to answer this question. We would expect him, okay, the question is, if, if he's in control, who resists his will? The way to answer this would be to pull back the screen on eternity. Let us peek into heaven itself. To see into the mind of God. To see what is, is going on in God's mind that He can still blame us even though He's in control of all of our actions and even our faith in in Christ. But Paul refuses to pull back the curtain. In fact, if he would have pulled back the curtain, I don't think that he would have understood and I know that he would not have been able to give us an answer that we would understand because these are questions that are in the mind of God and if we try and fit the infinite God into our pea brain, our brains will certainly explode. Because God is infinite, we are finite. As Dr. Krabendam used to, to finish that phrase by saying, but he fits very nicely into the heart by faith. So this is the point where we'd expect God, uh, Paul to answer all the mysteries. Instead, what he says in verse 20 should help us in our attitudes towards God and in terms of how we respond to Him when we don't know what He's doing. But who are you, O man, to answer back to God? Will what is molded say to its molder, Why have you made me like this? Does not the potter have the right over the clay to make out of the same lump one vessel for honorable use and another for dishonorable use? Tell me, who of us 
is able to talk back to God. Who of you or who of us has ever figured out all the mysteries of the universe? Who knows everything that God knows that we are able to question Him, put Him in the dock and say, God, You're not unjust. And here's why You're not, un- here's why you're not just. Oh, none of us are able to answer back to God. None of us are able to talk back to God. And so, he says, the potter has the right to make out of the same lump of clay one pot for honorable use, one pot uh, for ignoble or dishonorable use. In other words, there's two things Paul's saying here. One, he's saying, I don't, God doesn't owe us an answer. And secondly, there's not an answer that we would be able to understand or comprehend. The infinite God is going to have things about Him both in His being, like the Trinity, as well in his, as His thoughts and His works that we are not simply going to be able to understand in this life or eternity. If we knew everything about God, then we would, we would be God. Or if we knew everything about God, it, it would mean that God is not God. And so he uses this illustration, the potter and the clay. It's absurd to think that the clay is going to, just, to question the decisions of the potter. The potter's the creator. It has the right to decide what the clay should become. So if the potter wants to make some pots for noble purposes, a nice vase to be put up on the mantle, to be admired by everyone, to have some nice flowers in them, or a pot for dishonorable use. And the English translators uh, have helped us out here. Um, They didn't have indoor plumbing. They had pots that they would use uh, for their bathroom. And that's what's the contrast here. One pot for, for to be admired as a nice pretty vase and one uh, to be used uh, for the bathroom. So that's... The potter has the right to make out of the same lump of clay one pot for noble use, one pot for ignoble use. Why is God doing this? Uh, Well, look up again at verse 11. He did this, talking about His purpose of election, not because of works, but because of Him who calls. If we're the ones who make the final decision, then we are working our way, even if it's simply a decision. We are the ones who are responsible for our salvation, if we're the ones who's actually making the final decision. We make a decision, but God calls us and we respond. And then also, um, it secures not only the freeness of God's... um, of His salvation is that it's not by works, but also um, for the the purpose of um, of showing that it depends on God's mercy alone. 
And then there's this final question that is raised in verses 22 through 24. What if God, and this is not the the antagonist, this is Paul raising uh, and one of these questions that, that uh, the answer is already implied. What if God, desiring to show His wrath and to make His power known, has endured with much patience vessels of wrath prepared for destruction in order to make known the riches of His glory for vessels of mercy which He prepared in advance or prepared beforehand for glory. And so he asks this question, what if God is, um, has, is, is going to show His wrath and show His power against Pharaoh and against all those, all the ungodly? But what if He is patiently waiting before He pours out His wrath? In other words, if He hates sin so much... Why does He bear with us? Why is, is hum, sinful humanity still around? If He hates sin that much, why didn't He just completely wipe us out and be done with us? Well, He says, God, in this question, the answer is, He's enduring with much patience these objects of wrath, these objects that are prepared for destruction, these Esau's of the world, these Pharaoh's of the world. So he's bearing with them with great patience, bearing with their disobedience, bearing with their rebellion. Why does he bear with us? To illustrate his love to his chosen ones. You realize that every time an unbeliever dies without God, it's an illustration to his chosen ones of his unconditional love for them or for us. Our Salvation is a pure gift of God's grace. It is a pure result of His mercy. We can't bring anything to the table. We can't bring any works. We can't bring even uh, good intentions. We can't even bring our decision to the table. Because ultimately, the decision was made in eternity past when God chose a people for Himself. When you see an unbeliever, Die and go to hell. Ask yourself, why not me, Lord? I deserve it just as much. Every time, Paul is saying here, every time an unbeliever raises their fist against God, every time an unbeliever is rebellious to God, every time an unbeliever passes into eternity without God, but for the grace of God go I. But for the grace of God goes you. In other words, we're talking here about a message of God's salvation. It is a message of His mercy, His mercy alone. The Jews thought that it was owed to them. And they missed out. As Paul says in verse 25, those who are not My people, I will call My people. He who was not Beloved, I will call beloved. Now, that's not the end of the road for the Jews. We still have Romans 9, uh, the second half of, of 9, 10, and 11, where he, he brings up specifically the, uh, 
the Jewish people. But if you are resting in your goodness, if you are resting in your religious background, if you are resting in anything other than God's pure mercy given to you in Jesus Christ, you're missing out. Don't miss out on Christ. Trust Him today. Trust Him completely. Let's pray together. Father, I remember learning this passage and when I learned it, I realized that You were not the eternal bellhop waiting to serve my needs, but that You were the God of gods and the Lord of lords and that I was saved only and therefore completely by Your pure mercy given to me in Jesus Christ even before the world began. God, I pray that You would encourage Your saints who might be struggling. God, I pray that You would humble any of Your saints who might be prideful. God, I pray that You would break the pride to, to, to pieces of those who um, believe that they could contribute anything to their salvation. God, I ask for You to move and work among us because as this passage clearly tells us, it all depends on You. And so we pray through Christ Jesus our Lord. Amen. Please take your hymn books, turn to number.